0: Our scripture reading this morning is going to be from Deuteronomy six, verses four through nine. I'll give you a moment to turn there. It's page one fifty one if you're using one of the Bibles in the back. As you're turning there, I was thinking I was blessed by that video from John Piper about the Bible serving as a window from this world to the next, and this passage that we're going to read is—it's not an exaggeration to say this may be the most important verse certainly in the Old Testament, maybe in the New too. This, uh, this passage was uh, was well known to be that valuable. Even in Jesus' day, devout Jews knew how important it was. Even Jesus himself said so. And even today, Orthodox Jews repeat this twice every day in the morning and evening. This may be the, uh, the uh, John 3.16 of the Old Testament. So let's read it together. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates.
1: Thanks, man.
2: Amen. It's good to see you all this morning. My name is Jonathan. If you have never been here before and you're a guest with us, I'm one of the pastors here. We are going through a series this summer called Extraordinary, and we are doing uh, kind of some simple things. We're talking about how to live ordinary life for the glory of God. And so this morning on Father's Day, we come to the subject of family, and I'm really looking forward to doing that. But I really want God's help this morning, and um, I certainly feel my need every time I preach for the help of God and His assistance, because we don't want to waste your time. We don't want to Uh, speak empty and vain words, but we really want God's Spirit to come and to anoint and empower the preaching of God's Word. So, would you just take a moment and pray with me that God would do that, stir our hearts this morning, and transform us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We have sung about that already this morning, and we really, we love you, Lord. We are so grateful to be here in your church with your people to worship you. And, Father, as we come to this great and marvelous section of scripture, we ask that you would open it up to us, that you would enliven our soul and our life through this, that we would find ourselves massively helped and shaped by this text of scripture. And um, <clears throat> we are, we're, we're just so thankful that we can stand before your word and, and that we can read it and we can read it with freedom and there's no sense of persecution or, or hostility against us, but here we are totally free to worship you, Lord. And yes, this is a dangerous world. And yes, we pray and continue to lift up those dear families in South Carolina, Lord. We are so grateful for the testimony that they have, uh, that their relatives have, that this church has of their strong trust in Jesus. It's a dangerous world, but we are free nonetheless to read and to worship. And we praise you for that opportunity. And may we do that until our dying breath. Now come, O God, and help us. Pray that your spirit would move powerfully in our church uh, for the sake of your people and for your good and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, happy Father's Day to you. Um, It is a uh, special day. We celebrate Mother's Day and Father's Day each year. And uh, we come to this great theme, as I said, of the family in our series. And so, dads, let me say at the outset of this message this morning that... um, I really hope that you'll be, kind of two things will happen. You'll be challenged this morning in a helpful way, and you'll just be really encouraged and uh, motivated as we get out of here. It's funny, a member of our church was talking to me a couple of weeks ago and said, man, you know, moms on Mother's Day, they really get loved on from the pulpit. You know, everybody loves on the moms. But when it comes to Father's Day, they get the smackdown." <laughs> and I got to thinking about that. And I said, you know, I suppose there's some truth to that. Um, we can be hard on dads. And uh, and so, one of, one of the things I want to do this morning is, by God's grace, is I want to gently, Dad, if you're here, I want to gently prod you and encourage you, um, those of us who are leaders in the home, to a deeper and more biblical vision of what it means to lead our homes. But then second, I want you to walk away with great motivation and great hope for your future. And some of you are sitting here this morning and you're saying, you know what, I'm already discouraged because... I've raised my kids. My kids are largely out of the house and I feel like i failed. All right? I'm speaking to you right now. Hear me. Okay? It's not too late. It will never be too late with your kids. God can still do something marvelous and great. All right? So let's go into this morning with faith and and I pray that as we move into this section of scripture, you're going to find your heart uh, with new faith. You're going to find yourself new, new faith and hope welling up in your soul this morning. So... Let me begin this morning by showing you an image on the screen. Okay, I want to put up this picture. Now, if this is your family, uh, I doubt that you need this sermon. Okay, because what we're looking at here is kind of a very stereotypical 1950 idealized picture of a family. You see the dad, he's having a lively conversation with his son. And, he's, you know, they're having, and, and the, the, the daughter's listening in keenly. And mom is there to serve up a hot meal, right? Mom's always got a fresh, hot meal prepared because she has nothing else to do in her life but sit in the kitchen and make a great meal for Dad, right? <laughs> and so you get this idealized picture. Maybe it's a Sunday afternoon meal or something like that, and this family looks like, man, they've really got it all together. Now, I put up that picture because it's very easy when you come to church to have this idea that everyone else's family looks like this, except for yours, of course, right? Right? It's easy to end up carrying around in your mind some sort of airbrushed image of everyone else. And so some of you wives will assume that, you know, all the other ladies here at church, all the other ladies are enjoying this engaged support of their husbands who understand them so deeply and live with them so well and so intimately as their friend. Or parents will assume, well, you know what, all these other kids, I see all these other kids of these other parents, they seem to be loving and respecting their parents and seeking to implement all the wisdom that their parents give them on a daily basis. Mom, Dad, give me more wisdom because I want to follow that. And we have this tendency, even though we wouldn't say it in those words, but to kind of live like that functionally. Well, you know, my family's a wreck, but I look around and I'm so depressed because that family's doing well and this family's doing well and we compare ourselves to others. And I just want to tell you, that's just not the case. There is no picture-perfect family, I can assure you of that. I would suspect that most of our families look a bit more like this. <laughs> now, that's an interesting picture. You got, you know, the young guy on the, on the left. He looks like he's totally checked out, no interest at all. Uh, the daughter, man, does she look sour. Whoa. And then mom, she looks like she's just frazzled. She's just had it. Dad is just kind of whatever, you know just kind of going through it. Here we are, another day. And the little guy, poor little guy on the end, man. How old, is him? How old is he? And he's already depressed. So, you know, this is kind of like interesting because you look at a picture like this and you think, I can tell you there are days like that in my house. Anybody else can testify to that? There are days that feel like that. They look like that. And you know what? That's his life. And so we need to come to uh, an honest assessment that This is what life is like so often. So I want to say to you at the beginning of this sermon that there are no picture-perfect families. They do not exist. And that will be comforting for you to remember right from the start. In fact, as I was thinking about this this week, uh, I thought, what if somebody wrote a book entitled uh, something like Model Families of the Bible? What families would you include in that book? Let's think about that for a minute. I honestly, I think it'd be one of the shortest books ever written. Really? And we're talking about the Bible. I mean, in the Bible, what model families do we have? Consider this for a minute. How about Noah? Noah, uh, how about after the flood, Noah plants his vineyard. And then Noah decides he likes what he's planted. So he's going to consume some of what he's planted. And he makes wine and he starts drinking. What happens to Noah? Noah gets drunk. Noah's in his tent. Noah gets naked in his tent. And then his sons come around and see him in the tent naked. And they see his father's shame. That's Noah. All right? So Noah's drunk in the tent naked. Then we get to Eli. Eli was a priest uh, in the temple. And 1 Samuel tells us that he was such a flop of a father in some ways that his own sons were stealing out of the offering and sleeping with women at the Old Testament equivalent of the door of the church. 1 Samuel 2.12, in fact, describes Eli's sons as worthless men who did not know the Lord. I mean, Imagine the pain of Eli. I mean, Eli, we, we want to say is Eli is, is seeking God, serving God, loving God. But imagine the pain to know that he spent his whole life serving God, and yet he lost his own children. Lost them. And sadly, that's true of many pastors and many people in full-time ministry. So, you know what, if you pray for your pastors, I don't know what it is about pastor's kids, but it seems like they go crazy. It just happens so often. People in full-time ministry. and And I've got some theories about that. I think one of the theories is that is that dad sells his soul to ministry. He sells his life. The kids end up growing up resenting dad because dad has given his life for God. But he's also sacrificing his own family on the altar of ministry. I think that's part of the problem. But how depressing is, is this picture? Or how about the prophet Hosea? Uh, he married a woman, Gomer, who would later become a prostitute. And so lost was she in sin as a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness to God that she would go out and sleep with all manner of men. In fact, she came home on two, two separate occasions pregnant and the first, uh, the first illegitimate child was called lo Ruhama, which means not loved. And the second time she came home with an illegitimate child, that child was, kept, was called Lo-M-I, which means not mine. So uh, how depressing is this picture god's prophet walking through the streets introducing his two children as not loved and not mine heartbreaking it's heartbreaking the bible paints a real picture of the brokenness and destruction in families so let's start with this thought this morning there is no pain like family pain family pain is is deep because our hearts are involved in it and it comes as a result of sin. And so we need to talk about the challenge that our families are facing today and then really how to fix it. And so while you're settling in here to Deuteronomy chapter 6, I want to draw your attention to another portion of Scripture. Okay, uh, Proverbs twenty nine eighteen says, Proverbs twenty nine eighteen, where there is no vision, in some places there is no vision. We just need to say that there's no vision at all. Uh, The ESV says, where there is no prophetic vision, that is, we need God's vision. We need clear word from God where there is no word from God, no clarity about what God wants. Where there is no prophetic vision, what do the people do? They cast off restraint. Now, that word cast off restraint, ironically, is the same word that's used uh, to describe the time when Moses was off with God getting the Ten Commandments And the people, when the leader is gone, what do they do? They cast off restraint. They broke loose and they started worshipping the golden calf. They had no restraint. So where there is no prophetic vision, where there is no clear word from God as to what He requires and expects and demands, what happens? Families break loose. Now, if I could frame that in terms of a reference point for this message, I want to say that where there is no clear... God-given vision for the family, sin and pain and trouble will be the inevitable result. Here's the fundamental problem. An overwhelming majority of Christian parents, according to recent studies, 86%, okay, the overwhelming majority of Christian parents agree that it's their responsibility to teach their children Christian virtue. If we polled even our audience this morning, I bet you that would be close to 100%, all right? You would agree that you are to teach your children Christian virtue. However, we know also, according to studies, that in the average home, the average home spends less than 30 minutes a week in biblical instruction. So we say out of the one side of our mouths, you know, that it's our responsibility to instruct our children... But out of the other side of our mouths, we say, well, you know what? I don't have time to do it. Correction, I don't make time to do it. So is it any surprise that we're losing, again, to use some statistical analysis, somewhere between 75% and 80% of our children raised in Christian homes by the time they end their freshman year in college? Gone. I mean, walked away from their mom and dad's faith that they taught, that they handed down to them. Gone. No interest in God. Just no part of it whatsoever. Just out of the church. have no desire. I don't want to come. I don't want to be a part of it. Don't want to talk about spiritual things. Gone. And that's without even touching on the issues that our culture is facing. Like the, this sexual revolution and sexual ethics and homosexuality and transgenderism and all the other things that we could touch on that are beginning to affect the dynamics of family life. And current trends. And so we're just talking about the basics. Just basic biblical instruction and the fact that we're losing our kids. And so we turn to Deuteronomy 6 because we want to understand what is God's vision for the family. And it's in that context that we talk about the need, the great need for restoration. Now, I'm pretty convinced that we need hope this morning. We need hope for a better future because hope is critical. Someone once said that when we've lost hope, we've lost everything. And that's true. The sad fact of the matter is, is that many people have lost hope with regard to the family. People say things like, I just don't believe that my marriage will ever improve. You know, I've lived with this guy too long. I've lived with her too long. I don't believe anything will ever change. My son is too far gone. I just don't see how there's any way. This strained relationship with my sister or with my brother. I've tried for 10 years. I've done everything I can do. I just can't fix the problem. There's nothing that will change. And so people lose hope with regard to the family. And you know what? I I think that's sad. Because of all people, we should maintain hope. We worship Almighty God who says, Mark it down, folks. I'm for the impossible. I'm for the thing that is is impossible with man, but totally possible with me. This is the God who says, call to me and I will answer you and I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. And so I I just want to tell you at the outset that there's not much point in talking about a vision for the family if we don't believe that our families can change and that God will do great work if we'll seek Him by faith. And so I, I just challenge you to exercise fresh faith by God's grace this morning And my prayer is that God will produce a clearer vision for our families and fresh faith for us. So here's the encouragement and challenge that I want to bring you today. I want you to see from the Bible that far from destroying the family, if you choose to love God with all of your heart and soul and strength, your family will be blessed. In fact, to put that in a sentence, the best way to, I would say it this way, the best way to serve your family is to live for the Lord. And any other choice will ultimately have a negative or destructive effect on those God has called you to shepherd. So here's the principle I want you to remember love the Lord first, and your family will be blessed. Love your family first, and your family will suffer. Did you hear that? Love God first, and your family will be blessed. If you love your family first, your family will suffer. Now, What I want to do is I want to drill down here in Deuteronomy 6 and look at some foundations for what a solid family is built on. This passage, as Grant said, is one of the most important passages in the Bible and particularly on the family. And what I want to do is I want to mine out two foundations for a biblical family. And the first is this. It's found in verse 5. The first foundation on which a biblical family is built is a supreme love for God above all things. You see that in verse 5. We read this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Love for God is preeminent. Now, if you remember what's going on here in Deuteronomy, uh, in this book, Moses is speaking to this new generation of people who are on the verge of taking the promised land. But here's the thing, 40 years prior to this, Their parents were on the verge of taking the promised land. But what happened? They sent spies up into the land to check it out. God said, go in there. I'm going to give you this land. They sent spies. The spies come back. And when they see that the city was fortified with walls and that there were giants in the land, the people turned back. And as a result, they spent 40 years in the desert. They did not take the land. They were not blessed with the land. Why did they do this? Well, chapter 1 flip over to chapter 1 verse 39 tells us the motivation behind this i mean why would you not take the land and here's what it says we read that the people of israel did not enter the land for fear that the little ones would be taken captive when the spies came back the parents said no way the risk is too great You know, we have little children, and when we think about what's best for them, there's no way we should go into this land, because if we go into this land, some of our children, if not all of them, will be captured, and we cannot do what God says. In other words, my kids will be stolen if we obey God. Now, that's a crisis of faith, isn't it? God calls you to do something, and you're pretty sure that what God is calling you to do is going to harm your child. Do you feel that tension? I feel it big time. I mean, I can understand that, and I'm sure you can as well, and I don't think I would have responded any better. Honestly, do you? If it was your children? I, I, I'm confident that I would have just the same crisis of faith. I would turn my rear end around and go back and say, I'll just stay in the desert. I mean, it's amazing here. But notice what they did. They, did not, they put the children first, and as a result, hear me, it's tragic. It's tragic. The children that they tried to protect ended up spending the largest part of their life in the desert. And as a result of disobedience to God, they could have grown up in the promised land, but instead they end up in the desert. And so this is the first challenge I have for you this morning, and it's intentionally provocative, and it's this. Do not live for your family. Live for God. Obey Him first. See, Moses is is with this new generation. And so here's the thing. They're now faced with the same decision regarding their children. Okay? So now the children are there and they have their own children and and God is saying, go into the land. And and they they're faced with this same decision. The lesson is simple. Never put your family before God. And and we feel this same te- we feel this temptation in all aspects of, of family life. Alright, so let's just think about marriage for example. I mean, in marriage, we feel a temptation. Uh, we want to put our spouse first. You know, we, we say things like in our culture, I live for her. You know, she, she lives for me. You know, uh, she's my life. We'll say things like that, which is, it sounds really romantic. It sounds really loving, but it's I- idolatry. It is. Let's just be honest about it. To say I live for her. And, and I know, in generally speaking, what we mean when we say things like that. But let's be honest. If you really do live for them, <laughs> it's idolatry. You're not supposed to be living for them. You're supposed to love them. But you're supposed to be living for God. And so, we do this in marriage. We feel this temptation. And here's the thing. Your spouse can't bear that weight. I live for you. You know, she's everything to me. Well, she can't be God for you. And she's going to fail you. And so what you idolize right now, five years down the road, you'll demonize because she won't pull through for you. She won't give you what you're expecting her to give you. And you're wanting her to give you what only God can give you. And so when she fails, you hate her. What you idolize, you end up demonizing. And so we do this in marriage. The same is true for children. The command, you shall have no other gods before me, includes our children. Jesus says, anyone who loves his son or his daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, this happens in our culture. It happens. It can happen with us subtly. Jesus is simply applying the first commandment here. That we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, if we make an idol of our kids, here's the thing. We worship them. We teach them to worship ourselves. We keep telling them how great they are and, and how much you know, we just, we're just we just so kid-centered in everything that we do and, and and we we make an idol of them and then we're just teaching them, hey, you worship yourself, you know? You're so great. You're so awesome as, as a kid. And so they grow up thinking, man, I'm, I'm really great. And our culture keeps telling us, hey, keep feeding that message to your kids because, you know, that's the kind of affirmation they need. And so we start feeding them this stuff and then our kids get full of themselves and this is a devilish work. The principle is this. If you live for your family you will lead them into the desert. But if you live for God, you will lead your family into the promised land. Now, this is how family idolatry works. I was trying to think this through as an example. Um, I, I think it kind of works something like this. Um, we see all these singles and we're kind of jealous now. You know, we're in this phase of marriage and family. We've got all these kids and life's just really hectic and busy. And we look back and we see, oh man, what would it be like to be a single again? You know? These singles, we see these singles and they seem to be so radical for the Lord. And, you know, and and, and everything's so great. But then they get married, you know, and then everything starts turning inward. Okay? And, you know, it's like, well, you know you know, we're dating, and we, you know, we don't want to get distracted, because this is like a major, you know, time of our life, and, you know, we're coming up on marriage, and, you know, we don't want to get too involved with God, and ministry, and things like that, because, I mean, marriage is coming, you know, and we got to really focus on each other, and then, well, you know, we just got married, and so really, you know, kind of the first year should really kind of be about us, you know, because we need to get settled in here with marriage, and and, and we should really be kind of close together, and you know, because if we get too serious about God and like ministry and stuff, that's going to ruin our chemistry, you know, and then, and because this is the first year and, and it's, and it's all about us, you know, of course we're pregnant, you know, <laughs> and since we're pregnant, you know, we're having a kid and this is just going to be our first baby. And so we, we, you know, we got to kind of get the first baby going, you know what I'm saying? And I mean, we need to, we need to really focus on that. We got to think about what we're going to do to prepare for that child and, and we got to get ready and, And you know, we don't want to get too involved with like God and ministry and things because we gotta really get ready for that. And then, you know, those first couple of years as new parents, I mean, you just have to adjust to life with little goo-goo, you know. You just love the little guy. Get so close to him and you know, and then it's like we gotta get our kids through adolescence and whoo, man, this is a time we really gotta hunker down as a family and make sure that we're really close with with them, because man, these are the vital years of our kids' life. And, you know, and it just goes on like this. And then finally, you know, the kids are out of the house and, whoo, finally, you know, we can serve the Lord now. Now, is that what happens? Something similar to that tends to happen. This is a temptation we all face, but I just want to say that that's a false dichotomy. I mean, if Jesus is the Lord of our families, then we worship and serve. We worship God and serve our families best by putting God at the center of all we do. In other words, God and ministry and children and children and ministry and God and children are not like two separate things. It's like in the world of God, in the world that God has created, we include our kids in a God-centered vision of life. So that we're not trying to say, well, I'm going to bifurcate all this stuff. I'm going to give my time to God over here. And then if I have a little leftover time, I'll give it to my kids. Or I'm going to pour all my life into my kids. And if I have a little leftover time, I'll give it to God. It's No, it's a God-centered family life where you're wrapping your kids and your marriage and your children and your everything into God because He comes first and He's central in everything we do. And, and that's the biblical picture that we see here. Biblical families are not self-centered. They're deeply and profoundly God-centered. They're built on a supreme love for God above all things. See, the heart is issue here. And that's why Moses says, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. All right? So we're talking about whole soul, whole heart, whole strength, engagement with God. All right? And that's what I'm calling us to this morning. I'm calling us to a greater engagement with God. Now, that's the first foundation of a solid family. It's built on a supreme love for God above all things. The second, in this text, and there's many, but I'm just sort of unpacking this text. The second foundation on which a biblical family is built in this text is a family that centers itself on the Word of God. Okay, it's anchored there. It aligns everything it does with the Word of God. So, you just see this in the text. Uh, Specifically, we see three things here. Um, verse 4, it's a family that listens to the Word of God. Do you hear that word, hear, hear, O Israel? Uh, and then secondly, it obeys the Word of God. We see this in verses 1 and 2 with the language of do and keep. And then verses 7 through 9, it's a family that teaches the Word of God. Teaching is, is the issue. So, in, in other words, this is a, a, another way of saying the way we worship God is with our different faculties of our body. With our ears, we listen. With our hands, we obey. With our feet, we obey. With our mouth, we teach. This is what it means to love God. So let's just look at those three things. First, we love God by listening to Him. This is where we worship God with our ears. Verses 3 and 4, we read these words, Hear, O Israel. Uh, Israel is commanded to hear. They're commanded to worship God with their ears. Now, this, ironically, is what distinguishes Christians from other religions in the world. Because we listen to our God. We don't just live any way we want. We listen carefully to what He says so that we can do what He says. Uh, This is the way God intends for us to know Him. It's It's through our ears. It's not through our sense of smell or through our sense of taste or through our sense of touch like so many other pagan religions. I mean, I travel to India, and I'm telling you, that's how they worship God, is with smell and with touch. You know, burning things, incense, and touching things. But Christianity is fundamentally a religion of listening. We listen to God. All the verbs here, think about these, all the verbs that we see in this passage, fear, keep, do, tell, love, serve, all these commands make sense to us only because we're listening people, right? We listen to Him. That's how we know how to serve Him and how to keep what He says and how to do and how to, and how to love. And so some of you may remember this story or have read it or are familiar with it by John Bunyan. It's an allegory called Holy War. Um, and in that book, it's, it's a really neat allegory, but you have a city that's called Man's Soul. And Mansoul is represented by this walled city. And there are five gates in this city, okay? The five gates in the city are the feel gate, the, the five senses, the field gate, the eye gate, the nose gate, the mouth gate, and the ear gate, okay? And they surround the city. And in the story, the devil is guarding the ear gate, this is interesting, with 60 deaf men. In other words, deafness is the issue, And so when Prince Emmanuel, which represents Jesus, comes in to take back man's soul from the devil, what gate do you think he goes through? He goes through ear gate. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And this is how God has always worked with his people. In the Old Testament, when God's people hear his word, what happens there is repentance there is restoration. In Europe, the Word of God was rediscovered in the 16th century. And when it was rediscovered, there was massive reformation. Why? Because God was speaking and people were listening to God. They were hearing. And, isn't, and, and, and this is how God has worked in our life, isn't it? I mean, when you heard the gospel, somebody at some point came and they spoke to you the gospel. Yeah, they loved you with, with, with the love in Christ. They showed you lots of things they demonstrated love for you. But at some point, they spoke, didn't they? Didn't they speak truth to you? Didn't they say things about your sin and say things about heaven and say things about God's kindness? And so you're hearing words because faith comes by hearing. And somehow through all that, you came to understand your need of, your, of Jesus because you saw your sin. And so the point is very simple. If we love God, we will not be indifferent to his word. We will listen to him. Second, if we love God, uh, we love God by doing what he says. This is our hands. We worship him with our hands. Look at verses 1 and 2. Uh, in these two verses, we see two words, do and keep. God tells his people to do his word and to keep his word. So you see, if, if we really listen to God as we're supposed to, what happens is we'll be constrained to act on that word. We don't just hear it and then just be like, well, yeah, it was a neat story. You know, that was kind of cool. And No, we hear it and we're motivated. We're moved to action. We obey God. In other words, our love for God will be shown in how we live. So verse 2, we fear the Lord. That is, we regard him appropriately. That's what it means to fear the Lord. We, we, we regard him. We reverence him. We respect him. There is, there is something shown for him out of respect, We understand who he is. We see that he's the creator and the judge of the universe. And so that moves us to respect him and love him. Now, for some of you, obedience may seem like a really foreign concept when we're talking about love. And like love and obedience don't seem to really fit well together for you. But they're friends. They're not opposed to one another. Because part of how we express our love to God is by our obedience. I mean, that's how we get to express our love and say, God, I love you. And the way that I want to express this love is that I'm eager to obey you and I'm eager to do all that you say. To obey God is to love God. To love God is to obey God. So obedience is not supposed to be grudging like, man, I've got to do this because God told me to do this. And man, I don't get to do this because God told me I can't do this. No, obedience is the way that we say, I love you, Lord. I love you. So families show their love for God by how they live. Apart from obedience to God, a profession of love for God is meaningless. I mean, just think about a family, a husband or wife, where the husband says, I love you, honey, but he never listens to her or does what, what she wants, ever. Well, that's not love. We would say that's not love. Love is not just emotional. It requires action. If we say that we love God, we must give him our hands and we must give him our hearts. Jesus says, whoever has my commands, what did he say? And keeps them. It is he who loves me. So obedience is very foundational. And this is the emphasis here by Moses. Third, we love God by speaking to others about him, and particularly our children here. Uh, The children are the emphasis here in verses 7 through 9. A family that aligns itself or centers itself or anchors itself in the word of God is a family that loves God, not only with their ears, not only with their hands, but with their mouth. They're eager to speak to their children the word of God. They're eager to teach their children his word. Look at verses 7 through 9. What does Moses say? He says, you shall teach them, he's speaking of his children, of, of our children, he says, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them, uh, speaking of uh, the commandments of God, when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. What's the picture there? Simply every facet of life. Sometimes you're sitting, sometimes you're walking, sometimes you're lying down, sometimes you're getting up. The point is, in all of life, is that we are speaking to our children. It simply means that discipleship is an ongoing process. We are constantly speaking of the Lord, and, you know, we're not just speaking of the Lord in the home. We're saying, hey, guys, come together, come together. We're going to not just speak of the Lord. We're going to speak to him now. So let's pray together. We speak of the Lord and we speak to the Lord. And, and my encouragement to you as parents is don't let your love for the Lord be some kind of private thing. You know, where you go off and, and you have some private time with God and you worship him. I mean, do that. I want you to do that. But make sure at some point you let your children see the passion that's driving your life, your affection for God. Include them in ministry. Include them in worship. Serve with your kids. Bring them to your community group, you know, if they can come there. Worship with them at church. Sit with them at church. Sing songs with them at church. Hold their hands at church. Lift their hands. Encourage them. Tell them what you're doing in church. And when we're singing, tell them, hey, son, pay attention. This is what this song's about. And, and this is what we're doing. And, and, you know, and, and encourage them while they're young to, to take some sermon notes and to think and to read the Bible and bring them in to, to the whole worship experience. Do hospitality in the home with them. Teach them how to serve. You know? Teach them how to do evangelism on the street. Talk to strangers. When you sit down for a meal, ask the waiter or waitress, how can I pray for you? We're a Christian family. Show your kids. Model evangelism to do. Do something with them ministry with them in the church. But here's the thing, we have to make time for these things, don't we? It's so easy just to kind of check out. It's just so easy. And I I fail at this as a pastor and and as a dad in my home. And so I I know the struggle here. I don't speak from a position of, you know, uh, having conquered these things. So Moses is saying, let your whole family life be an expression of of this one consuming passion for God that works its way into every aspect of life. And that's why it says in verses 8 and 9, really interesting language here, that you're to take God's word and bind it on your hand, and then you're to put it between your eyes, and you're to write it on the doorpost of your house. And the idea is here is that God God and his word is to mark your home entirely, saturated with God and his word. But you know, if that's going to happen, we've got to share life together. We have to. I, I was thinking one of the things the devil has really done well in our culture is that he has is, he is totally succeeded at this. It's separating parents from their kids. You know, where, where parents and kids just there's not getting that much interaction together. And he's done so well at doing this. Keeping kids and parents separated so much. Spending quality time with family has become so difficult in our society. There was a time before the Industrial Revolution When when dad would eat breakfast with his family and then he worked on his own farm, you know, he was uh, just how society was run. So dad would go out in his backyard, he would work. And when his kid was able to sort of understand what's going on, he would bring his son out there with him and say, let me show you how to fix shoes or let me show you how to farm or let me show you how to, to do this or to do that. And so dad would train and teach up his and train up his child and teach him. And so his sons would follow in their footsteps. Ironically, it's how a lot of people got their names. You know, um, Miller, Carpenter, Cook, Baker, Smith. Why? Because that was their profession. That was their trade. And so that was pre-Industrial Revolution. But then the Industrial Revolution came along. And and here's kind of what happened there. Dad had breakfast before his kids got up and was out of the house and off to the factory. Dad would leave the premise. He would go off. He would work all day. And so therefore, he was not able to share his life with his children. And in the same way uh, that that he used to be able to do. And so he's away from his children. And and there's a a bit of a vacuum that's felt there. And so now, here's the thing. We're in a post-industrial age where not only is dad gone, but hear this. Mom has become another means of production. And so what that means is that today, moms are often not at home either, which means the home... Is no longer a place of production. It's become a place of almost entirely consumption, and it's no longer a place primarily of instruction. It's become a place for just sleeping. You know, it's just a roof. And so I say all that to say this: is that's not our fault that that's happened that way. It's just like that's our society. That, that that's what's happened. We've gotten to a place in society where, man, this thing's going so fast. And we're, and we're just our head's spinning, trying to figure out what are we going to do here to adjust to this. We're living in a post-industrial age, and whoa, we got to figure out how do we how do we get our kids back? How do we how do we circle them around and make sure we're discipling them and spending time with them? Because this thing's going to get out of control on us. And so, I say all to say this: it's very hard for us to disciple our kids in this culture. Um, a modern lifestyle will kill us. It will crush us. It will cut the very legs off our discipleship if we're not careful. So let me give you three things really practically uh, about this. Number one, make sure that you have a biblical and theological vision for your family. In other words, don't just get up every day and assume, well, I know how to be a dad. Well, okay, but do you know where your family's going? What's your plan for discipling your children? What is the family for? What does a dad and mom do? Well, How do we define the family? What is the purpose? What's the, what, what are the prerogatives? What, what are the objectives here? So have a biblical... Let me recommend some resources. Andreas Kostenberger has written probably the quintessential book on God, marriage, and family. So try to read that. Try to work through that, Andreas Kostenberger's book. Number two, be willing to make hard decisions about the way you order your family. Loving God and seeking Him is more important than baseball and scholarships. You know, it just is. It's more important than sports. And, um, and what we, look, we want our kids to succeed. Some of you have a stewardship there. You know, your kid is a really gifted athlete. And you, you do, you have a measure of stewardship. But, but let's just make sure that God is always first, okay? And that God is always first in terms of, uh, even before academics as well. So, and then the third thing is this, just do your best and pray for grace, all right? But, but let's make sure we're doing our best. Let's make sure we're, we're putting forth our best effort. Now, as we're doing some soul searching on this point, if, if we're not experiencing more of God in our lives and families, the question is why? And, and I think we need to kind of almost bring ourselves to a point of crisis in our life here in a good way because I'll tell you this, just doing more of the same will just produce more of the same. So if you don't like everything that's being produced right now, you can't keep doing the same thing. Some changes have to be made. Something fundamental, something basic must change. And I think, I think it's this in part. Our whole orientation to spiritual things has to be altered. And altered from the roots. We don't need more methods and techniques. We need the Lord himself to come down and to lift us up. Nothing else will do when we seek him with all of our heart and with all of our soul and when our very being begins to ache with desire for God's visitation, and when we are consumed with hunger for His presence and His reality, and when we are radically cut back on other activities that really don't matter in order to seek God, when we start doing that, then we are on the verge of transformation. Then we are on the verge of a family breakthrough where we begin to see God move in some ways He hasn't moved before And we will come and our families will become immersed in the very presence and worship of God. Your home will turn into an atmosphere of worship. And I tell you what, when you get to that place and your home starts looking more like an environment of worship of God, that's when we start heading in a direction of, of, of real breakthrough with our kids, our marriages, our families. And so... We've seen two foundations this morning on which a biblical family is built here. One is supreme love for God above all things and two, a family that's centered on the word of God, verses seven through nine. It's a family that worships God with their ears, worships God with their hands, worships God with their mouth as they teach and instruct their children. And so so here's the thing. If we're gonna begin to live that way by the grace of God, you know what'll happen? It'll provoke all kinds of questions. Okay, because... Dads, we're going to be leading this, right? So if we're leading this, your kids are going to start asking questions. Um, And and those questions are going to come because these convictions are going to reshape how you do life together and how you spend time and your hobbies and what you do. And your children will start asking questions. The children of Israel did the same thing. Look at verse 20. Chapter 6, verse 20. Look what they did. They will ask, what is the meaning of, of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you. The kids are asking this. They're saying, Dad, what's the meaning of all this? Like, what's the point of all these rules and statutes and stuff that God has commanded you? They'll ask that and your kids are going to ask that. And and why are we doing this? Now listen, parents, this is my last challenge for you this morning. When your kids ask you that question, resist the temptation to just say, because God told us so. And instead give them gospel centered answers when the children say hey dad why do we live like this i mean other families don't live like this why do we do these things when they say why do so many people come in and out of our home all the all the time you're always talking about hospitality why are we making all these sacrifices why are we spending our money on these things when they ask that, give them gospel-centered responses. Christopher Wright says, it would be really easy to jump from the question in verse 20, which is, why are we doing these things, to the answer in verse 24. The question in verse 20 is, why are we doing these things? The answer in verse 24 is because God commanded us to do so. Really easy to jump to that. And as parents, we feel the temptation to answer our kids the same way. But listen, we must be careful not to jump too quickly to the answer in verse 24. Why? Because we've skipped over verses 21 through 23. What's in between those verses? What's between those verses is gospel, it's redemption. There we read right there in verse 21 You shall say to your son, Son, we were slaves in Egypt, but God delivered us. He brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. In other words, son, if it wasn't for the Lord, your mom and dad, we would have been slaves. But God has brought us into his family by his redeeming love. And so when, when your son asks, Dad, why do you why do you love God, Dad above all things, including us as your kids? Why do you work so hard to make sure our family's centered on the gospel, on the word of God? Why do you insist on us listening to the Word of God all the time and paying attention in church and writing notes and, and thinking about the sermons and talking about it at lunch? Why do you insist on, on obedience to God and teaching us all the time and family worship? And, and why do we have so many people in our home all the time for hospitality? And why do we make all these sacrifices? And why do you spend your money all that, this way? Tell them this. Oh, son, it is not a sacrifice. It is not a burden to love and serve God in this way. We do these things because Christ made the greatest sacrifice for us. God saved us from our sins, and he 's given us new hearts to love and serve him it 's not a sacrifice, son it 's a great privilege. Inspire your kids with the gospel, Dazzle them with grace, show them the love of God over and over again. And so you know there 's this song um, by Lady Gaga entitled wouldn 't Be a Complete Sermon without a quote from Lady Gaga, huh <laughs> There is a a song, but seriously, by Lady Gaga called Born This Way. And the message is is really, it's just blasphemous. It's it's terrible. I was reviewing the lyrics again this week and thinking, man, man, is that just an epitome of what our culture says? And Lady Gaga in this song encapsulates the message of parents in our culture and what they teach their kids. And in the song, there's this line. She says, my mama told me When I was young, we were all born superstars. We live in an affirming culture that says the best thing you can do for your children is tell them how great they are. You know what? Can I say this reverently? That's the most damning thing you can tell your children is how great they are. Because if nothing in your children is broken, what in them needs to be redeemed? I mean, how will they ever see the need of a savior if their parents keep telling them how great they are? You say, are you suggesting, Jonathan, that we go around and tell our children that they're little sinners? No, no, I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm suggesting that you tell them that you and they are big sinners, huge sinners and that apart from Christ, there's no good in us. And there's no hope for us. And tell them that then on the back end of that message, that God has shown up in the form of Jesus Christ. And he has redeemed us from our bondage to sin. And by the mighty and gracious hand of God, he has intervened in our bondage and slavery to sin, sin and rescued us. Tell him that message. Let's, let's rewrite Lady Gaga's song. I took the liberty to rewrite it. All right, here it is. My mama told me when I was young, we were all born sinners. You are far from perfect, babe. Listen to me when I say, become beautiful in God's way. Wrong track, baby. You were born this way. But come to Christ and he will set you free. Let's sing that song to our kids. Listen, if we will implement God's vision for our families, our best days are ahead of us. They're not behind us. Our happiest days, our most joyful moments in our marriage and with our children and our family is not behind us. It's ahead of us. The greatest victories are still ahead. That's hope. And so let me just encourage you uh, before we pray to just grab a pen and just jot down a couple of things. I just have the screen right here. There's a couple of things. Just, just grab a pen and start writing some things, okay? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about what your husband or your wife is writing. Just, just grab that pen and just say, God, by faith, we're going to move forward. We're going to make some decisions. We're going to change some things. And, so, and just start scribbling some things down here, all right? And, and as you're doing that, just be thinking about this. What are the needs of my family right now? You know, maybe it's pretty serious, and maybe it's something that you've stopped trusting God for because you don't believe things will ever change. And, and maybe it hurts so bad for you to even think about it right now. You know, it's just, it hurts. But I just want you, by faith, to pick up the pen again and, and take up the subject again. And by faith, begin to think, how can we pray for things to, ch- to change and for things to be different? And so let's pray for our marriages and our families And for the grace of God to be evident in our homes. And let's ask God to strengthen us with fresh hope this morning. To say, God, I believe that things can be different. Like, I'm not stuck in this rut forever. Because I have the supernatural power of God's Spirit at work within me. And within my family. And I I failed so much as a dad. But you know what? The Spirit of God is in me. And I can be a different dad. And yeah, I've blown it over and over again. But you know what? I'm saved. I'm washed. That's covered. That chapter's closed. And today is a new day. And I've got the power of God. And so let's just do it. Let's go forward in his strength. Let's do it. Let's move forward. Psalm 42, 5. Why are you in despair? Oh, so, oh, my soul. And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Psalm 71, 5, you are my hope, O Lord. You are my confidence. Psalm 130, verse 5, I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word do I hope. Romans fifteen, four: for whatever was written in earlier times, Deuteronomy 6, was written for our instruction and encouragement that we might have hope. Amen. When we think about our family and the, all the work that needs to be done or this or that that needs to change, God wants us to have hope. So wives, give your husbands grace today. Give them tons of grace because they're a sinner and they've failed so many times. But you know what? Hug them. Tell them you love them. Tell them you're for his leadership in the home. Encourage him. And then dads, look, let's not live in condemnation. Let's get up and let's say by grace, we can make some changes. All right. And if it's just baby steps, we'll take it. But let's make some changes and let's move forward by faith. Okay. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for the ministry that has taken place already in our hearts this morning. And, and you are faithful, God, and you are at work. And Lord, forgive us for dreaming such small dreams for our families and for not believing that you will do, this, that you can do some of the same things in us that you're doing in other places with other families that are trusting you by faith. Lord, we believe that you will do these good things in our homes. And so I pray that the seed of your word and the fertile soil in our hearts would spring up into hope and confidence and faith that the very best days for our marriages and children and family are still ahead of us. You are good and faithful, God. You are working in our church and our families and we give you praise. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. Let's stand and respond. God is for us. And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what could stand against it? If our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what could stand against stand against. And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what can stand against?
2: 1513 is a word for encouragement for us as you guys head out today. Um, it says this very simply May the God of hope fill you with all joy. I want you guys to have joy today. Have joy, okay? Really do, because it's all done. The victory's won already. So, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that, here's the purpose by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So let's do that. God bless you all. Have a good day.